Hello, I'm Rob Buckingham and welcome to the Digging Deeper podcast, episode 79. We dig deep into topics and questions each week to discover what the Bible says. While we're fascinated by the book of Revelation, we also find it confusing. And so later in this podcast, I'll share some keys to help us understand this captivating book. And we'll take a look at the new Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21. But first, Jesus told his followers not to swear an oath. What does that mean? And is it all right to swear an oath in a courtroom? Let's find out. Hi, Pastor Rob. Question for you. What does it mean to swear by Almighty God? People take this oath and don't even believe in God. Would you take the oath? Uh, Looking forward to Tuesday night's blessings to you and all yours. Thanks so much, Patricia, and also for the question. Now, the uh, scriptures that Patricia is referring to are found in Matthew chapter 5, and it's part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And uh, repeatedly through chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus refers back to scriptures in the Tanakh, what Christians call the Old Testament, and uh, then kind of modifies things a little bit. And that's what he does here. So Matthew 5, 33 to 37, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, I want you to notice there. So Jesus quotes uh, a number of scriptures there from the Tanakh, and then he modifies them. I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head. You cannot make even one hair white or black, This is obviously before hair dye. Uh, All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one, the NIV says. Um, The words uh, or the word one is not in the Bible. Uh, Really, the Greek says, uh, when I say the Bible, I mean the original Greek manuscripts. Um, So the Greek says comes from evil. So any more than this or anything beyond this comes from evil. So it's not talking about um, a personality here like the devil. Uh, I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment because the word evil actually holds the key, I think, to what Jesus is teaching. So Jesus is paraphrasing several verses from the Tanakh, and we'll have a look at these now. So first of all, Exodus 20 and verse 7, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Then there's Leviticus 19 and verse 22, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. And then there's Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 11. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Uh, Some longer verses in Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 to 23. If you make a vow to the Lord your God 
do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your whole mouth. You might also want to note Numbers chapter 30 and verses 3 to 15, a long passage of Scripture that also talks on this subject. And so here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus argues for a better way by actually teaching that vows are completely unnecessary. And so by saying what he says in the Sermon on the Mount, he agrees with Solomon's words that we find in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 5, where he says, it is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. And so that's the teaching of Jesus. The Apostle James then quotes Jesus in his letter. We find the quote in James chapter 5 and verse 12, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. And I, I looked at that, that last uh, sentence there, otherwise you will be condemned, because it sounds pretty blunt. Uh, the Greek there literally means otherwise you might fall under judgment. And this could mean, and I think this is what it does mean, that it's probably an accusation that is made against you by other people. So if you go into a lot of flowery language, rather than just saying a simple yes or a simple no, other people might accuse you of miscommunicating or not keeping your word or all of that. I don't think it's referring to God's judgment in that particular context. Jesus teaches against oaths because they are unnecessary. He says, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from evil. And so let's get back to that word evil for a moment, because as I said a few minutes ago, I think that that word holds the key to understanding what Jesus is teaching. The word evil here is not kind of evil. It means worthless or, or pointless. So what Jesus is teaching is that oaths are unnecessary. They yield no value. He's teaching us as his followers to be simple. Simplicity and integrity is the order of the day. He's encouraging us not to make things more complicated than necessary. Rather than get into all kinds of oaths, just a simple yes or no will do, says Jesus. Keep your communication uncluttered. Be a person who is upright and honest where your word is your bond. Um, I, this is an important thing to me personally. I was raised this way by my parents. I remember my dad uh, always talking about people who, uh, if, if he gave them his word, they would know that he was as good as his word, right? He was true to his word. And so that was instilled in me from a very young age. And I think that's a wonderful quality for all of us to have. Um, what we say, people can know, wow, yeah, Rob said that, so he's as good as his word, it's going to happen. And that's what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching people about how to live in everyday life. And I don't believe that his comments here address an oath such as one that you would give in a courtroom 
What Jesus is teaching about is our communication with one another in everyday life, where just a simple yes or no will do, rather than attempting to back it up by making an oath, by swearing on God or ourselves or something else. So just as I wrap this up, um, Patricia asked the question, would I take the oath? And I'm inferring from that question that she's referring to an oath in a courtroom. And the answer to that is yes, most definitely I would and I do. I have done on many occasions. Uh, invariably over the years I've been called in uh, by members of our congregation um, as uh, a character witness when a situation arises invariably from the past, um, often before they became a Christian, but sometimes not. But they'll say to me, this is what's happened, this is what I've done, and I'm asking, would you come and stand strong with me in court as a character witness? And uh, most times I'm very happy to do that or one of our other pastors uh, will do that. And so there are times where I've been in a courtroom and uh, I've always chosen to um, swear on the Bible uh, because I love Scripture. So I'm happy to hold the Bible, put my hand on Scripture and repeat the oath. And I do so out of great sincerity um, of heart, knowing that what I'm about to say will be the truth and nothing but the truth. The other oath, of course, that I've sworn over the years and was happy to do so was when I became an Australian citizen. So this is back in the 80s. I think I was still in Geraldton in Western Australia working on the radio. So I'm thinking somewhere around 1983, maybe 84. Um, my family emigrated from uh, Great Britain uh, when I was 12. And so um, I'd been an Aussie for what? Um, well, well uh, less than what? About 15 years or so, I think, by that stage. No, less than that, maybe about 11 or 12 years. And so I decided as an adult, uh, adult, I wanted to become an Australian citizen. So I made the application, was accepted, of course, and then had to appear um, at a citizenship ceremony where all the conferees could choose either, um, well, between two versions of the pledge, one that refers to God and one that does not. So I chose the one that refers to God, and it went something like this. From this time forward, under God, I pledge my loyalty to Australia and its people whose democratic beliefs I share, whose rights and liberties I respect, and whose laws I will uphold and obey. So there's nothing wrong with saying that kind of oath by swearing in that way. What Jesus is talking is about an everyday language where we're making a promise, and we just simply make a promise where our word is good our yes means yes, our no means no, and that's the answer to your question. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and finding help understanding the Bible and how it applies to life. Here at Digging Deeper, we'd appreciate your help letting others know about this podcast. One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. And please like Rob Buckingham's public figure page on Facebook. You can interact with us there and ask questions you'd like Rob to answer in future episodes of Digging Deeper. Now back to Rob. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 16, when he measured the new Jerusalem, he found it was, was square, as wide as it was long. In fact, it was in the form of a cube. 
for its length and width and height were each 1,400 miles. Then he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick. What does all that mean in Revelation? What a great question. I love that. So let's have a look at it together. The um, verse that Grant refers to is Revelation 21 and verse 15, uh, 16. The city was laid out, and when it's talking about the city, it's talking about New Jerusalem. It was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. Um, and so Grant's correct, 12,000 stadia, it's equal to 1,400 miles or 2,250 kilometres. So this city, New Jerusalem, 2,250 kilometres square. It's massive, right? Um, and uh, then in verse 17, the angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. Notice there it's the angel doing the measuring, 144 uh, cubits thick. The word thick there can also mean high, so the wall might be 144 cubits high rather than thick. A cubit is about 18 inches or 45 centimetres, and so the wall was either 200 feet thick or 200 feet high. That's 65 metres in metric. And so with that background, Grant asks, what does all this mean in Revelation? And before I, I go into the specifics of this, I just want to highlight a couple of uh, podcasts, of uh, episodes of Digging Deeper from a couple of years ago called Understanding Revelation, part one and part two. So it's episodes 24 and 25 of Digging Deeper. And if you haven't listened to those, or maybe even if you have, you just want to do a refresher, it's myself and Shane Willard doing a deep dive into this fascinating book. And I know that you'll really find that helpful because a lot of people uh, find the book of Revelation quite confusing and quite mystical. And so to summarize, there are some important things to know about Revelation. First of all, the book of Revelation was the final book to be included in the canon of Scripture. By the way, the word canon there is taken from the Greek word canon with a K, which means to measure. And, and it was taken from verses like the one we've just read in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 16, where a, a measuring rod was used. And so it was a measure. The canon is a measure. And the only scriptures included in the canon of scripture are those who measure up to the criteria um, for being part of the word. And I'll go into that in a little bit more detail on another occasion. Um, and so Revelation was the last book to be included in the canon of Scripture, and it was included on the condition that it would never be used to predict the future. That is so important because how is it misused on a regular basis? Revelation is ultimately a book that is, inspires worship. To use it in any other way is to misuse the sacred scriptures. And so to find meaning in any part of Revelation, we need to ask ourselves how this points to Jesus and his mission. Sometimes uh, Revelation is called the apocalypse, and sadly this word is misused as referring to the so-called end-time events. 
By the way, end times is never mentioned in the scriptures except in four headings uh, that have been added by the editors. For example, uh, Matthew 24 and verse 1 has uh, a title inserted by the editors that says the destruction of the temple and signs of the end times added by the editors, not inspired, not in the original manuscripts, okay? So the Bible never mentions end times. What it does mention is the last days, and the last days began with Jesus. Very important. Jesus and the day of Pentecost. Have a look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, that God spoke to ancient people by the prophets at many times in various ways, but he has in these last days spoken to us by his son. And then on the day of Pentecost, Peter goes up and he quotes from the prophet Joel. Uh, In the last days, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. And so the last days began 2,000 years ago. The Bible never mentions the end times. So what does the word apocalypse mean? So sadly, if you look this up in the dictionary, it will give you all the definitions that I've just talked about, about end times, okay? It means uh, describing or prophesying the complete destruction of the world. The apocalypse is momentous or catastrophic events, or it's something that resembles the biblical apocalypse. All of these definitions are completely misleading when we attempt to understand the Bible's use of the word. The word apocalypse (coughs) excuse me, the word apocalypse is only found once in the scriptures, and that's in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. The revelation, the word revelation there is the Greek word apocalypsis. We get our English word apocalypse from that Greek word, and it means revelation. It means to unveil or uncover. It's the revelation from Jesus Christ, but rather from is actually not a good translation. It should read the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the book of Revelation is literally the unveiling of Jesus. In other words, through the book's pictures, stories, and metaphors, we see a greater revelation of Jesus Christ, which leads us to worship him. And that's the whole point of this book. Also note that uh, John wrote about things that must soon take place, soon, not in 2,000 plus years time, soon. It's a Greek word that means to do something quickly. So in other words, the events described in John's revelation will happen shortly, and will take a brief period of time to happen. The scriptures aren't dangling a carrot uh, to the original recipients of the seven churches. And it's so, so important that we understand that. You know, John is not writing the revelation from Patmos 2,000 plus years ago and then sending it to the seven churches in Asia Minor, um, telling them about events that were going to happen 2,000 years later. That would be ridiculous and unfair. He was writing in a genre that was understood by people of the day, and um, uh, he was writing to them about things that they knew about. He was writing symbolically uh, in a code, if you like, but people would have known that he was talking about the Roman Empire. He was talking about um, 
Nero. He was talking about the Roman emperor, uh, sorry, Roman armies coming um, uh, against Jerusalem and all of those things. Revelation is based historically around that time, and we've got to understand its history so that we don't misinterpret it in our time, and then we understand that it is this magnificent book that reveals, unveils Jesus, that we might be in awe and wonder of Jesus and worship him as a result. So continuing, the revelation was something completely understandable to the first century people. The events and people surrounded the war between Rome and Israel under Emperor Nero. The visions show that Jesus Christ is Lord, no matter what may happen on earth. And there's a truth that works today, right? doesn't matter what's happening in your world right now, whether it's all good or all bad or just, you know, ho-hum. Jesus Christ is Lord no matter what. And there's a truth that we can hang on to. It's also important that we understand Revelation is written in the Hebrew apocalyptic genre. It was a popular literary style from the 2nd century BC to the 2nd century AD. Revelation was written in the middle of this era. The book of Daniel from chapters 7 to 12 is also written in this style. If we were to think of uh, a style of writing that's more contemporary than Revelation, I would point you to things like Lord of the Rings. <coughs> I'd point you to things like Lord of the Rings uh, or the Narnia Chronicles or maybe Harry Potter any, anything that is written metaphorically, you wouldn't take it literally, but also it's packed with truth. And that's certainly true of Lord of the Rings. Uh, Tolkien's uh, Catholic faith came through in his writing. I don't think he was writing Lord of the Rings as a declaration of faith, but his worldview as a Catholic, as a believer in God, as a believer in Jesus came through in the story. C.S. Lewis, of course, as an evangelical Christian, I believe was much more definite in writing the Narnia Chronicles and, um, and, and the message of the gospel comes through loud and clear. But we understand when we read Narnia or if we watch the movies that we're, what we're seeing is metaphor. It's symbolism. We, we're not going to be looking at the back of our wardrobe, finding a mystical land somewhere. Um, but we know that Aslan represents Jesus um, and the, the gospel comes through loud and clear. And that's the genre that the book of Revelation is written in. And it's really important that we understand that. So with that background in mind, what about the verses Grant has asked about? Let's go back to Revelation 21. And verse 16, the city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, as wide and high as it was long. Now, remember, revelation is symbolic, not literal. In the verses we've just, or the verse we've just read, it's obvious in the fact that the angel is measuring a distance of 2,250 kilometres with a measuring rod. The word rod there means a reed. It's like a reed that you would pick, although in this particular case, it's a golden reed. So it's maybe like a ruler, like a 12-inch, 30-centimetre ruler. How long would it take to measure 2,250 kilometres with a ruler? So it's symbolic. 
A stadia, a stadia rather, is a Greek measure of length. The Greek word is stadion, from which we get our English word stadium. In Bible times, a stadium was a race course for public games, still very similar in our day. In Scripture, measurement, when used symbolically, denotes divine protect, uh, perfection. So it denotes divine perfection. And so what is being communicated in these verses, in this story, was the perfection of God's plan for humanity. Verse 17, the angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick or high. 144 is 12 by 12, and that symbolizes the completeness of God's people. I encourage you to have a look at Bible symbol, uh, numerical symbolism in the Bible, and maybe I'll do something uh, about that um, on a podcast soon. Uh, also, want you to notice the 12 by 12. So, 12 apostles and 12 tribes also talks about those in these verses as well. I'll get to that in a moment. 12 by 12, 12 apostles, 12 tribes, the completeness of God's people, Jew and Gentile, coming together, united as one. And so if you look at Revelation 21 and verse 12, the city had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then two verses later, verse 14, the wall and the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so that refers then to the completeness of the church. And so the heavenly city is unlike the Tower of Babel, which people sought to build up to heaven. In John's vision, the new city descends from God to earth. Neither is the city built by people. The work is all God's in which he demonstrates his love for this world and all of its people. A city represents human community. It represents life together. The church, the community of faith, is the anticipation of this reality. The New Interpreter's Study Bible puts it this way. The city is not for the faithful few, but is inconceivably large. The kings and nations of the earth will be there. The nations are not only destroyed, but finally also healed. Walk by God's light and bring their gifts to God. The city has walls and gates that function as the boundary markers to separate insiders from outsiders, but the gates are never closed. And I think that's a magnificent truth that comes through loud and clear because while nothing and no one impure is ever allowed to enter it, there's also a constant invitation toward the end of Revelation. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. And so here we see a perpetual um, invitation, if you like. In, in Revelation 22, uh, one moment uh, all of the impure people are outside the city wall, not allowed to go in, but the spirit and the bride, the church, are constantly giving the invitation, hey, come on in, come on in, come on in because the gates are never never closed. And so wonderful truth there, and that's what God's church should be like now. Yes, we have clear uh, walls, if you like, uh, of um, what is right and what is wrong, but our gates are never shut 
and we constantly have an invitation to people, come in, come in, come in. Do the journey with us. Come and do the journey of following Jesus together with us. Great truth and a wonderful question from Revelation 21. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. A new episode of Digging Deeper is out every Wednesday. If you like this podcast, please share it with others and rate and review us on iTunes. That goes a long way to help others find us. If you have a question or topic you'd like Rob to address, please get in touch with us at Rob Buckingham's Public Figure Facebook page or email connect at baysidechurch.com.au. Next week, Pastor Rob will explore the nature of Paul's thorn in the flesh. All that and more on next week's episode of Digging Deeper.